Excited to be able to minister today. I'm going to preach two messages um, this morning. It's going to be a part one and a part two. So first and second service will get um, part, first service will get part one, second service will get part two. And I'm going to preach a message entitled Women in Ministry? Question mark? Women in Ministry? I am so excited about this. I, I've probably put, I don't know, 20 hours into this morning's messages and, um, you know, just in the last couple of weeks and then over the years, I don't know, dozens more. And, uh, and even yesterday, just, just spent the majority of the day in prayer and just study, just thinking about the Lord's heart in regard to the role of women in the church. And so uh, what I'm going to do is first service, I'm going to give... Uh, I'm, I'm literally going to give a dozen biblical examples of women functioning in ministry in the Bible. I'm going to give a dozen of them. And so, you know, we're going to walk through the list. And, and the thing I really want you to do is just lock in with me. And, and for some of you, you're like, well, duh, of course women are uh, supposed to be in ministry. Uh, but some of you, you come from a background where that's like completely taboo, that women were, have never been allowed to, to be preachers or teachers. And so what we're going to do is try to get everybody on the same page. So first service, I'll give a dozen biblical examples of women functioning, anointed by the Lord in ministry in different ways throughout the scripture, Old and New Testament. And then second service today uh, at the 1115, I'm going to walk through one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. I'm just going to exegete the passage. And I need you to allow me to teach you this morning. How many are willing just to be taught this morning? And and so some of this will be a little bit like, hey, you got to connect your mind to it. But here's my ultimate desire. I want to free everybody in our house, man and woman, to be able to engage in God's design for the church to function together, male and female, flowing in all the gifts and callings that God has for us. Amen? And so I want to liberate us with the truth. I want to say this. Our commitment is to the Bible, It's not to a ministry style. It's not to um, a theological position. Our commitment is to the Bible. And where we don't like what the Bible says, we wrestle with it to to allow the truth uh, of the scripture to stand above us and to instruct our hearts. And we don't try to make the Bible conform to to our own desires. And so this is a, a critical thought that we're not camped out on any theological position. We're camped out on the scripture. And where the scripture testifies to us, the scripture is the ultimate authority for us. And so that's our desire is to speak truth from the word. And I will just go ahead and add a parenthesis to that. Nobody has everything right. So we're going to do our best. And this is, a, this is a conversation we've been having in prayerful study and conversation among our leadership team. We're going to do our best to be true to the scripture. And, and, and we're always going to uh, allow for the Lord to instruct us and sharpen us and better us as we're coming to a greater understanding of the word ourselves. Amen. And so I'm presenting what, kind of where we are with a humble heart, not demanding everybody just, you have to believe the way that I see this or the way that we see it. But if you see scriptures that are in opposition to what we're saying, then bring it to us, show it, show it to us. We're happy to, for the Bible to, to, to instruct us. I'll tell you what we don't have any energy for is your theological position, the way that they did it in your old church, your denomination, or what the, the ways that man did it. 
and demanding us to follow some man-made thing that's not even scripturally supported. Amen. So I'm just, yeah. I'm, so <clears throat> I knew this morning that I was going to be sort of nailing in a, in a final way kind of this, this, this uh, spirit that wants to suppress and objectify women and, and ultimately um, come against women. And, uh, and so I, I felt like, Lord, I just want to be as humble as I know how to be and trust you as much as I can and allow the grace of God to flow through me. And, and I'm asking you, Lord, to make me your oracle. And I agree with that. But I'll tell you this, and I just need you to, I just need you to jump in with me for a moment. We're going to pray here in just a second. But I literally woke up this morning and the first text on my phone was, your mother has been rushed to the hospital and she's experiencing, you know, essentially the symptoms of vertigo. So even right now, my mom is in the hospital getting a CAT scan to figure out what's going on with her physically while I've come here to preach about the liberating of women in, in ministry in the church. And I don't know, you know, you might think, well, that's a weird kind of a situation. You know, that's just a, what's the term? A random, what is it? Coincidence. You might think that's, a, that's the one. You might think it's a coincidence. I think it's called spiritual warfare. <laughs> So uh, my mom would hate that I'm telling you this because she is like tough as nails and doesn't want anybody to ever know she's sick. She'll be the person with flu, wraps herself up in a blanket and comes out of her house a a week later and she's fine. Never goes to the doctor, but we're gonna pray for her right now if that's okay with you guys. So Lord, right now, I just thank you for even today, just what you're wanting to establish biblically, theologically, in the spirit, uh, casting down strongholds that exalt himself against the knowledge of God. And as truth is supposed to go forth and set hearts free, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And Lord, we, we thank you for truth being imparted to us. And I ask you to help me to speak as an oracle today. And, and, and Lord, right now, I just pray for my mom as she's in the hospital with these symptoms. We rebuke those symptoms in the name of the Lord Jesus. We ask you, Lord, right now to touch her physical body and heal her. We ask you, Lord, drive back the attack of the enemy off of her right now. We see this as a backlash as we're declaring truth that the enemy would try to come and steal, kill, and destroy. So in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we disallow that right now, and we command healing to be. We thank you for it. And everybody that agreed with that said amen, amen, and amen. All right. So as I said, we're going to rock through 12 examples in the scripture. And before we do that, I want to give a concept. I want us to, to get a, a concept of biblical interpretation. And, and this concept, I like to call it principle and praxis, principle and praxis. Uh, when you look at the Bible, you find there are biblical principles. There are, are, are sentences and paragraphs that we draw principle and doctrine from And then in the scripture, there's also narrative that tells us the way that the the believers, the way the Old Testament saints, that they functioned practically in life. Okay, so there's principles that instruct us, and then there's praxis that shows us how they lived. Now, biblical theology, biblical theology looks at the whole narrative of the Bible sees the whole story, 
And from there, looking at the praxis of believers, it identifies what the key principles are. In other words, doctrines are not formed outside of the biblical narrative. They're formed in light of the biblical narrative. Does that make sense? Okay, so we don't just get a bunch of scriptures together, forget the story of the Bible, and then create a doctrine. We look at the whole package and then allow the doctrinal statements in the scriptures to to inform us what it was that these guys were practicing. So the the practice of the Bible, it it helps us come come to clarity on on what the, the, the instructions and the principles are, okay? And so here's the key, key, key point. If we see the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the leaders and, 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 and the believers in the scripture, if we see them practicing something that supposedly they instruct us against, then what we're gaining, what we're ascertaining from their instruction is likely not what they actually thought. Does that make sense? If they're practicing something and then we read portions where they're giving us instructions, but their instructions seem to be in opposition to the very thing that they were doing, something's missing in their instructions. Am I making sense? If I'm making sense, wave at me. And so what that requires us to do is not just say, well, the instructions are this, this is what it has to be. It requires us to look at the instructions and then try to understand how those instructions, how those doctrines, how they actually work with what their practices were. And so what I want to do in the first service is I just want to walk through 12 biblical examples that give us a clarity on the narrative in regard to the role of women, their role in leadership, their role in preaching, their role in teaching in the scripture, I want to establish a foundational you know, set of, of parameters that show us what was the practice and the role of women in scripture. And then as we look at those, those practices and those examples, and these aren't all of them, I just, I picked 12, I like 12, it's the number of government, I just thought that was cool. So these aren't all of them, but as we look at that, then we're going to ask some hard questions. We're going to actually ask some hard questions. And if, if somehow we have a doctrine in our mind that, that says women aren't allowed to do any of these things that the Bible actually says women were allowed to do, then our doctrine is off. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. We're on the same page. Let's move in. All right. 12 biblical examples of women teaching, preaching, and leading in the scripture. First... You could probably guess where I'm going first. Deborah. Everybody say Deborah. Deborah. Judges 4 and 5, we see that Deborah, who was a married woman, was the judge of the entire nation of Israel. She was called a prophet. Now, it's interesting because she was married But watch this, the gift of God was on her to lead the nation. 
It didn't just go to her husband because he was male. The gift of God was on her to be a prophet and it was on her to lead the nation. And, And what would happen in those days is the people would come to the judge and the judge would um, handle the matters of dispute among the people. And so Deborah would stand there uh, and judge the nation as, as they would bring their issues before her. She would hear prophetically from the Lord and she would release the word of the Lord and judge the nation. Not only was she the leader of the nation, not only was she a prophetess, she also led the nation into battle. She gave a prophetic word to Barak, who was the military commander of Israel at the time, and she said, the Lord has said that you're supposed to go into battle. And Barak turns to her and he says, listen, I don't think I can do this without you. It's pretty intense if you think about it. What was going on? That the head of the military looks at Deborah and says, I need you to go into battle with me. He's recognizing the authority, the gift of God, the anointing and the commissioning that's on her life to lead the nation. He says, I want you to come with me. She goes, I'll come with you. But guess what? The glory is actually not going to go to you then. The glory is going to go to a woman. She actually says that to him. And I love how the the narrative of that story all plays out because this woman, Jael, she takes a tent peg and she drives it through the head of the foreign commander and it causes the entire battle to shift in the favor of Israel and they win. And then in chapter five, uh, Judges five, the whole chapter is a song written by Deborah and Barak. And the Lord uses her as a mouthpiece to declare the eternal truths that become scripture. So Deborah is an excellent example of a woman in leadership, a woman anointed by the Holy Spirit with authority as a prophetess, functioning properly as the Lord had her. All right, second, Miriam. Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. She's identified as a prophetess over the nation of Israel. She led the nation along with Moses and Aaron. She prophesied over the people, and she actually has verses in the scripture that the Lord used her to declare truth that are now canonized as the eternal word of God. She's described as one who was sent before the nation alongside Moses and Aaron. And that was a critical, critical time in Israel's existence because they're coming out of slavery, they're coming into their inheritance as a nation, and right there in the leadership team, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, a woman, is in a key, key position functioning in authority and in leadership. All right, that's two. Now, I know a list of 12 can be long. Just ask your neighbor, what number are we on? We're on number three, or if you're looking at the notes, it's letter C. I always have a problem with my notes, I'll just mention this. Because my Roman numerals, you know, they're numerals. Well, then the next thing in an outline is letters. So a lot of times my my Roman numeral is five things or 10 things, but then I go into letter format. So three will always be C, four will always be D, Five will always be E. It just is what it is. All right. You needed that. Third, or C, Huldah. 
Everybody say Holda. 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 So Holda is a prophet. She was a prophet who was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. Okay? At the same time as Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, Holda was a prophetess. The, the, the biblical passage that describes her is 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, in 2 Kings 22, Josiah is king, and the nation has been in a season of backsliding. And what happens is they find the book of the law, they begin to read the instructions in the law, and then the king sends the priests to the prophet to get the word of the Lord. Now, check this out. He doesn't send the priests to Jeremiah. He doesn't send the the, the priest to Zephaniah. He doesn't send the priest to Habakkuk. Instead, he sends the priest to Huldah. Tell us what the Lord is saying and tell us what we should do. And Huldah hears the word of the Lord and what she releases is absolutely powerful. She releases a word of revival. She says revival will come to the nation, but also the nation will undergo judgment. The nation is going to experience judgment because all of these years that they turned away from the Lord. This was a massive, massive prophetic word. And in the days of Josiah, there was massive revival. And following the days of Josiah, massive judgment at the hands of Babylon. Huldah is a major, major prophetic voice that shifted the course of the entire nation. And what we see is the king and the priests went to Huldah to receive the word of the Lord and instruction. Huldah. Huldah's a good one. A lot of, a lot of times I think of Huldah as the, uh, she's kind of the, the lightweight, heavyweight, light heavyweight champion. Like people don't re- remember Huldah. That's a good one. That's a big one. All right. D, Abigail. Any Abigails in the room if your name's Abigail? To see, Yes. Abigail, such a beautiful name, such a, a beautiful biblical example of a prophetic woman operating in humility and pre, uh, prophesying the word of the Lord and giving instruction. And the story is this. Abigail is the wife of Nabal. Nabal is a fool. His name literally means fool. <laughs> I don't know how your parents think of you if you come out and they go, fool. I mean, I don't, anyway, so he's, Nabal's fool, married to Abigail. I'm not sure how he got Abigail. Abigail is identified as very beautiful, very wise, all these very, very positive traits, and he's a fool. And, and so here's what happens. Nabal's shepherds go out to shear the sheep, and what happens when they went, when they would go out to shear the sheep, they would be you know, overnight out in the fields, out in what the Bible actually calls the wilderness, and they were in danger of marauding bands of raiders coming and stealing the sheep, killing them, and, and, and it was just a, a dangerous thing. And so what happens is David, uh, his army was out there at the same time, and during when, when Nabal's uh, shepherds were, were shearing the sheep, what David's military guys did is they went ahead and they were, the Bible says they were like a wall around these, these shepherds. They took care of them. They protected them. 
And so David uh, says, hey, send Nabal a message and just say, hey, man, can we get some food? Can we get some water? Could you help us out? We've been out here protecting your guys and just wondering, could you help us? And Nabal's response is, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Which is not a positive response. That's like, I don't know you, man. Get out of my face. I don't owe you anything. So David says, no problem. Let's kill him. (laughs) It's kind of a dog-eat-dog, eye-for-an-eye kind of a culture back then. Some of Nabal's servants, they run to Abigail because they realize she's the one that's got her head on straight. They run to Abigail. They go, hey, 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 Nabal has made a big mistake. David's men are about to kill Nabal. Could you do something? And she, she goes ahead and prepares a huge meal and, and sends it out before David. And, and, and then she comes herself and she looks David in the eye and she basically says, you're a man of God. You don't want to do this. He's a fool. Let God deal with him. You, this is beneath you, turn from this wickedness that that you're going to do and allow the Lord to fight your battle. And David says to her, thank you. You've instructed me according to the ways of the Lord, and you've kept the Lord's servant from bloodshed. And it was just a minute later, and the Lord strikes down Nabal. The Lord avenges, avenges David at the word of Abigail. Man, King David allows Abigail to prophesy and to instruct him and to correct him. (laughs) It's a huge one. I love Abigail. She's such a picture of a a woman operating in, in her authority and femininity with the word of the Lord and the wisdom of God. Amen. Five. We're going to, yeah, it's E. Come on, Billy. I am, I am coming. New Testament. Because some people literally, I know this sounds crazy. Some people go, well, those are all Old Testament examples. They don't, they don't count for the church. I don't even, let's just not even fight that argument right now. Uh, it does count for the church because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his nature hasn't changed. He, when we look at how he operates with people, it speaks to what we think he's like. If we think he's this hierarchical, top-down, you know, uh, I don't even use the terms. If we just think he's this, this headstrong, uh, I'm in charge kind of guy, then we will project that on everything else that, that the Lord says and does. And, and we'll completely miss who he is as a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of servanthood, a God of kindness, and a God of humility. Jesus Christ is the most humble man that's ever lived, and Jesus Christ is the express image of the Father. All right, Anna, Luke chapter two, we have this uh, narrative about Anna Well, the scripture is very, very clear. It says that Anna was a prophetess and and she had been seeking the Lord in fasting and prayer night and day for, for decades, decades and decades. We love Anna. She's an example to us in the house of prayer. We love her because though she was, uh, she was widowed at a young age, 
She stayed faithful to the Lord for, for many, many, many years. And over that time, she, she developed this prophetic ministry. And so when Jesus is in the temple as a child to be dedicated to the Lord, the Lord sends this prophetess, Anna, to speak prophetically over Jesus. To speak the word of the Lord over her, over him. I mean, that is absolutely stunning. And then it says this, that when she saw him, she went and spoke to everyone in Jerusalem who was looking for the Messiah. That's called evangelism. That's called preaching. In a certain way, that's maybe the first one that that ever preached the gospel. Because she said, Messiah has come, I have seen him. Some commentators believe that she went and she went door to door, not just throughout Jerusalem, but all over Israel for the remainder of her life. A prophetess who's an intercessor, who's an evangelist. We love Anna's example. We see her as a picture of what the Lord wants to raise up at the end of the age, an entire community of believers with a prophetic spirit given to intercessory prayer, crying out night and day, and and calling everybody to, to know the Lord Jesus. Amen. We love Anna's example. All right, F. Mary, Mary of Bethany. Now, we've taught on Mary of Bethany um, several, several messages this year, and we emphasize the fact that when Jesus was in the midst, she stopped what she was doing, and she got before him at his feet, and she, she listened to his word. You know, she, she opened her heart to hear, and, and while Martha was busy making all these preparations, Mary was sitting before the Lord. So one thing we haven't explained is this. When a rabbi would come and and, and begin to teach, often his disciples would come and then sit there before him. For Mary to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, it was actually a place of prominence among the disciples. See, in the culture of the day, women were oftentimes not allowed to be in those kind of teaching environments. They had to be in a in an auxiliary room if they wanted to hear anything, they had to overhear it. But instead, with Jesus, Mary is actually sitting right there before him. She has a place uh, sort of in that setup as as one who is uh, essentially like a star pupil. And she's given this place by Jesus himself. It's likely, many commentators believe this, that the reason that Martha is so disturbed, it's, it's yes, that, that Mary's not helping with the preparations, but one of the keys that, that, that she's so disturbed about is that Mary has completely shattered what the, the norm was for women in the day. She's actually sitting before the master where that would not have been a place that women were allowed. And what does Jesus do? He actually says, she's chosen the good part. Her example is one that should be considered and emulated, not one to be rejected. And so not only has she chosen to be intimate with Jesus, not only has she chosen to to listen to his words and hear his voice, but she was in this place of a student. And and if you're in that place of a student, the point is you're going to be a teacher. That's That's what's inferred in that whole interaction is that Mary sitting before Jesus is likely being instructed so she can be a teacher of his words. 
Amen. G, which usually when I get down to G, I lose track of which number this is. Seven. The Samaritan woman at the well. You guys know this one. Jesus breaks every cultural norm. He's talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. Those things were completely frowned upon. But this is something critical that we kind of miss in this whole exchange in John chapter 4, verse 28. In verse 28, it says, she went back and spoke to the men. I love it. She went back and spoke to the men. She said, come and see a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. And then it says, many of the people, and in, in, in some translations, most of the people of that town began to believe in Jesus. Now, this is fascinating because I love the point that Jeff brought out a few weeks ago talking about, you know, the, the women at the resurrection, but it's also the same with this, the Samaritan woman. The authenticity of this account, it's, it's, it's got to be how it happened because in that day, no man would, would emphasize that she went and talked to the men and that the men listened to this woman. But instead, at hearing Jesus and, and being encouraged by Jesus to go share, she goes and leads an entire town to the Lord. Some would call that evangelistic. Some would call that apostolic because that's a place where the name of Jesus had never been mentioned before. She's an amazing example of a preacher and teacher of the word, specifically a preacher and teacher to the men. Check out John 4.28 when you get a chance. H, which is something like eight, I think. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary received the angelic visitation at the resurrection, and the angel actually commissions them to go tell the disciples. Then they turn and they have an encounter with Jesus, and then Jesus commissions them to go tell the other disciples. This is a a massive, massive example. Jesus himself commissioning the women to go tell the disciples, to teach them and preach to them that Jesus, in fact, was resurrected and that he was going to go before them and they needed to meet him. That is a huge, huge point. When I look at these verses, man, it strengthens my heart, and I see Jesus himself commissioning, an angel, you know, itself commissioning these women. And we've got to take note when we see this. All right, we're on I. Nine, thank you. Some of you guys are going to play that game all the way to the end. Just, it's good. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you. Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. Some translations call her Prissa. But Priscilla and Aquila, they were house church leaders. Paul called them fellow companions. What's interesting about them is how often her name is mentioned in the scripture in front of his name. Priscilla being mentioned before Aquila is a major, major point because culturally, 
that would not have been the thing. Uh, it, it speaks of several things. Many commentators believe this, that Priscilla was likely the chief spiritual leader in the church that was in their home. And that's why she's mentioned first by Paul and she's mentioned first in the book of Acts by Luke, that she was likely the chief spiritual leader of that church. Well, the point that I actually want to emphasize, though, is Acts 18, that when Apollos, who is an apostle, when he comes to Ephesus, he only knows the baptism of John. He only knows that. He doesn't know the full story of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. He doesn't have a full picture of the gospel, but he's really, really convinced about John's message that there was one coming after John who, who, would, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire, who, who John wasn't worthy to unlatch his sandals. He was very, very convinced of the message of repentance that John the Baptist had brought. So he's preaching the message that John the Baptist had brought, had brought. When he comes to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, who are leading a church there, they meet him and they're like, man, you are awesome, but we want to tell you a little bit more about what this is you're preaching. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and instructed him in the way of God more accurately. In other words, they, they filled in all the blanks from the baptism of John all the way through Pentecost. They had to give, they had to give him quite a... A, 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 a massive amount of instruction, clarification. Obviously, they had, to, they had to identify sanctification, justification, talk about the resurrection, salvation, you know, all of it by faith through grace. I mean, they had to lay out so much to, to Apollos. And Priscilla is identified as one of the chief teachers of Apollos in that whole transaction. That's a huge one, guys. J, 10, 10. You guys are doing great. We're on number 10 already. Way to go. I mean, when the preacher stands up and goes, we're going to do a list of 12 things, you're like, oh, dear God. We're on 10. You're doing fantastically. Now, this one, not much is talked about, but it is significant. Acts 21, 9, Philip the Evangelist, one of the original seven sort of deacons, it's identified that he had four virgin daughters, four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Some translations call them prophetesses. Four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Here's the point. These daughters weren't sort of in their room by themselves giving each other little words of knowledge. They had a known ministry that Luke thought was significant enough that in the explanation sort of, of a broader kind of passage and narrative, he inserts this point that this guy had four prophet daughters. Obviously, the church knew of their ministry. They were obviously ministering beyond their own bedroom, and, and others were receiving from their prophetic ministry. My point is this. For them to be prophetesses, for them to be prophesying, they had to be doing it in a way that the church, male and female, was receiving. Now, here's another point. 
When we see these, these inspired utterances, prophetesses or prophesying, inspired utterances include preaching the gospel and teaching doctrine. I was thinking about what Joy was singing this morning, and I was thinking, if, if somebody who was unlearned came in here today, Joy's singing it, but it would be a completely uh, new moment of instruction as she's teaching eternal truths of how shame has been lifted off of our hearts in Christ. Even the, the singing of a woman over a congregation is an instruction and a proclamation ministry. Can I get an amen, please? And so these prophetic women that Luke identifies were clearly operating in a proclamation, uh, inspired language uh, kind of ministry, but it, it, it definitely included the preaching and teaching aspects. All right, K or 11, the upper room. In the upper room, we had both men and women who received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now this is, I just love, I love the Lord. I love the Bible. I love what God does. He decides to start the church with a prayer meeting that gets completely blown up. I mean, we're just gonna have a prayer meeting and whoa, there's fire on you, man. You know what I mean? Like what is happening? And whoa, you're shouting in some other tongue. Like what is happening here right now? I just love how the Lord does. And so he he pours out his spirit in the upper room. Fire appears and is distributed upon everybody. They all begin to speak in tongues. The city hears the sound of a mighty rushing wind. People gather. The 120 find themselves out in the street, and they are speaking in unknown tongues, declaring the wonderful works of God in other languages that the people standing by recognize and that they also recognize that guy doesn't know that language, that woman doesn't know that language. The Lord uses both men and women on the day of Pentecost at the birthing of the church to declare the wonders of God to the nations that had all assembled in Jerusalem. Come on. Finally, Phoebe. I love Phoebe. Read Romans 16 sometime and notice how many times Paul commends and affirms women in Romans 16. It will, it will get your attention. I, I'm gonna actually do that in the second service this morning. Paul affirms and commends, I think it's four different women right there at the beginning of Romans 16. It's, it's pretty stunning. But he starts the chapter with Phoebe. He says, I want to uh, commend to you our sister Phoebe. She is a servant. The NKJV would, would say servant in the church of Centria. Other translations uh, use the word deacon. Others use deaconess. Some use leader. And when you study out the word that Paul is using for Phoebe, it's really, really clear it's the same exact word that later when Paul gives the, the uh, requirements for a deacon, it's the same word. This woman, and commentators, many, many, many commentators agree, this woman was a deacon in the church of Centria, which means she was a leader. She had a certain standard she had to live by to actually be able to step in and, and work in that office. And, and Paul actually says in Romans 16 about Phoebe, he said, she has poured herself out for so many, including me. 
And then when I think about Phoebe, I just love that example that she's in leadership serving, giving her heart for others. And he goes, and she's even served me and refreshed me. And he goes, and I'm asking you right now, Romans, to refresh and serve her. What, a, what a, a, an awesome, awesome example. There's 12 of them. Okay. We're coming down the back stretch. Now, here's the thing, as I mentioned to begin with, if some supposed doctrine that we have in our head in some way cancels out any of those women from being able to do the ministry that they did, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament in the local church, then our doctrine is off because they are not censured for doing these things. They're commended and affirmed for doing these things. Does that make sense? And so what we have to do is line up our understanding of the doctrine and the instructions with the biblical narrative. And this requires us to ask some hard questions. First one I would say is this, does our interpretation of the Bible in any way, in any way preclude any of those women from doing any of those things? Does the way that we think about what women are allowed to do from a biblical perspective, does it say women should not have done any of those things? If it does, then we're completely off in, in what we, we believe the Bible to actually teach. It's, it, it, they're, they're incompatible. And so I just want to mention them again. Deborah, she judged and led and prophesied to Israel. Miriam was sent before Israel alongside Moses and Aaron. Huldah gave instructions about the book of the law to the high priests and the government officials. Abigail instructed and prophesied to David. Anna was a prophet and an evangelist to both men and women. The Samaritan woman was the first evangelist in Samaria preaching to the men, John 4, 28. Two Marys from teaching the men that Jesus had been resurrected. Priscilla from teaching Apollos. Phillips, four uh, virgin daughters, prophesied. The, woman from the, upper, the women from the upper room going into the streets and, and speaking in tongues to be heard and interpreted by men. These are all biblical examples that show us the role that women are, are, are allowed to have and that are affirmed and, and commended to have in the scripture. If any of these things, I just, I'm hammering this point because this is in people's minds as a stronghold that I want to dislodge. If any of these things in some way doesn't work with your doctrine on women, I just want to say to you boldly, your doctrine's wrong. It requires you to reassess what you think the biblical doctrines are regarding women, which is exactly what we'll do next service. I'm gonna take the hardest passage and go right into it. So you may have had plans. You may have been trying to beat the Baptist to the buffet right now. That may not work for you because I'm gonna go right into it and I'm gonna go right into the teeth of one of the more difficult passages. Here's a question that I've been asking that I, I don't quite, comprehend, and maybe somebody that comes from one of the backgrounds can, can answer it for me, but I, it's just been sticking in me, and I, and I want to emphasize it. There are huge portions of Scripture that God used women as the mouthpiece to declare eternal truth. He, I mean, he used Miriam. He used Huldah. But, but he, he used others. He used Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He, he used Mary, the mother of the Lord, and, and, and she, 
Um, my soul magnifies the Lord, the Magnificat. I mean, there are massive portions of scripture that were authored and spoken by women that were then canonized into eternal truth into the Bible. Now, here's my point. If somehow we think women aren't allowed to teach us, what do you do with those passages? They're Bible. 1 Timothy 3 says, 1 Timothy 3, Timothy 3, 16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction, for doctrine, for correction, reproof, that we could be, that we grow in righteousness. If God used women to author scripture, why would we imagine that women can't actually teach those scriptures? And if the scriptures apply to both men and women, like, like nobody's thinking, right, that if a woman authored a Bible passage that only the women and the children are allowed to read that Bible passage, right? Nobody's believing that, right? So if God used a woman to author a Bible verse to teach men and women, why would we imagine that a woman couldn't teach those same scriptures to men and women? This is the biblical narrative. It's, it's super, super clear. Now, in the next service, we'll get into some of the, some of the more nitty-gritty on like one of the key passages, 1 Timothy 2, we'll look at that. All right, let's do this, let's stand. I know this is more teaching, but I wanna set you free. We're not up here just freewheeling it. We don't have a feeling women should be able to preach. We've done the theological work. We've prayed. We've asked the Lord for clarity. We've asked the Lord for correction. We realize we're hitting a stronghold. What I'm seeing right now in society is actually making me sick because I'm seeing men come against some of the key women preachers right now and it's garbage, man. Just want to be kind. <laughs> I think it's garbage. I think on the on the on the giving them the benefit of the doubt, it's just a simple misunderstanding, misinterpretation of passages. On the worst side of it, it's misogyny. It's sin, and it needs to be repented of. Amen. Amen. I want to pray for us. I want to ask the Lord to help us to lift confusion off of us and to set us free. And I will tell you this, we are not just gonna you know, preach some doctrines and say yay for women and then not have women preach. We're, we're in dialogue, we're in prayer right now figuring how can we have a constant flow of women proclaiming and teaching on the platform and in other ministry environments all over the place. So this is our heart and this is what we wanna see happen, amen. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, so many examples. So I pray right now that you would tear down every stronghold in the mind that somehow has disallowed women from operating in their anointing, operating in their gifting, in their calling as preachers, teachers, and leaders. We've prayed unto this, we've declared unto it, now we've taught unto it, and I'm asking even right now, let the last vestiges of those bondages fall God, we need male and female operating appropriately in the church that we could come into the fullness of our giftings.
Come, Holy Spirit. Hey, if this this morning is dislodging something in your mind about how women are able to function, I just want you to raise your hand. I want to pray right into it. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, right now, for those that are saying yes, this is, it's shifted something in the way I think. God, break them free completely. Full liberty in the name of Jesus. Male and female, full liberty in the name of Jesus. God, break us free of every vestige of the subjugation of women. God, we wanna see men operating as fathers and as sons, as as spiritual heads, and we wanna see women operating in, in their anointing and calling and gifting, fully called alongside together in the body. Now, Lord, set us free and anoint us for your glory. Just sense the liberty of the Holy Spirit just blowing through right now. Be free. Be free. Be free. If you're a woman and you've got a teaching, preaching gift, and you thought, well, I just have to use it for like public school. I can't use it in the church. I just want to set you free from that. We need you. We need you. Some of you have leadership gifts and you thought, well, the only opportunity I have will be in the business sector. And I'll tell you, we need you operating in your gifts in the church. We need you. So come, Holy Spirit. Do what we ask. And help us, help us to flow together, male and female, in this spiritual family. And we love you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen, amen and amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.